Okay, now you can be done. Okay, great. I'm going to press pause on this recording and thank you. Good night, mic drop. This is Oil & Water Relay. I'm Joe LaVisca. And I'm Rachel Dunkeld. Oil & Water Relay is a conversational space where we sift through recent news about oil and gas projects from around the U.S. and the world. This is our chance to share our emerging insights and pass the conversation on to you, our listeners. Each episode, Joe and I will talk through a handful of recent news stories, summarizing the basic points of the story and offering our interpretations. We're recording this on February 24th, 2021. You can find each Oil & Water Relay episode on your favorite podcast app, or go to our website at oilandwaterpod.com and click on the episode's link. You can find us on social media at Oil & Water Pod. Okay, should we get started? Sure. All right, so today is going to be a little different. Instead of organizing our conversation around the usual news roundup, Joe and I thought it would be helpful to take a deep dive into the wild world of the oil industry's plans for addressing climate change. There's a lot to say about this, and we certainly won't get to it all. But we want to start learning about the strategies that the industry is using, what makes good ecological sense, and what makes PR spin. Because they're two very different things. Yeah, and a shout out to Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson at the Oil & Gas This Week podcast for pointing us to the news about Oxy's first carbon-neutral oil shipment. I highly recommend Oil & Gas This Week for our listeners if you want more news from an oil industry perspective. Mark describes himself as an environmentalist, and he has decades of experience in the oil industry, so his perspective is pretty nuanced, I'd say. And the reporting does include strategies that the oil industry is taking to address climate change, too. For sure. So a little background first. In the years since the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, there's been some buzz in the oil and gas industry around how to meet the goals of reducing fossil fuel emissions in the atmosphere. So we want to know how do companies like Shell, BP, Chevron, and others, whose business is the burning of carbon, get on board with a worldwide reduction in greenhouse gases? The answer that many companies have hit on, for now at least, is the idea of net zero emissions by 2050. So today we're going to take a look at a few key ideas that oil companies are implementing in order to meet, or at least appear to meet, the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement and reach net zero emissions by 2050. And the first big idea is that an oil company can still be an oil company as long as it spends enough money to offset its carbon emissions through revamping operations and investments in renewable energy and carbon capture. So this is known as a net zero emission strategy. A few recent announcements have brought this to our attention. On January 17, 2021, TC Energy, the infamous Canadian oil company that conjured Keystone XL into being, announced that KXL would be operationally carbon neutral by 2030. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, three days later, U.S. President Joe Biden killed the project for good, making me wonder if the announcement by TC Energy was a last-ditch effort to rebrand its product for more palatability or if it was really genuine. 
And also this year, OLCV, a low-carbon focused division of the oil company Occidental, announced that it had shipped the world's first carbon-neutral oil shipment from the point of drilling to the point of burning. Uh, We'll have more on that in a minute. But many major oil companies, think BP, Royal Dutch, Shell, and Repsol, are jumping on the bandwagon. And of course, net zero plans are more complicated than you might imagine. And some plans, particularly from American companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron, still allow for an increase of overall emissions while continuing to offset them. It's like turning on the tap to a bathtub that's already overflowing while promising to start bailing water in the future. One way this gets spun is in the type of emission category that companies are taking responsibility for. Yeah, so let's talk about greenhouse gas emissions for a minute. Everyone knows that we produce emissions. If you've ever taken an ecological footprint calculator, you will have been asked questions such as how many miles per week do you drive? Or what percentage of your diet is made up of meat? These footprints are visible. We can track them to determine how much what we're physically doing impacts the environment. But Joe and I have also discussed in the past that there are a lot of invisible things that we do that have an impact on greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, there are actually three main types of emissions, scopes one, two, and three. And they can be further broken down into categories for businesses to track. For governments working towards international climate goals, these scopes can be a good way to ensure businesses track their ecological footprint and work to decrease them. Plan A Academy released an article that elegantly breaks down scope 1, 2, and 3 emissions for us so that we can understand them better. Firstly, scope 1. Scope 1 greenhouse gas emissions encompass direct emissions from company-owned and controlled resources. Imagine fuel-burning company vehicles, the heat and fuel use of company-leased and owned buildings, and emissions released in the manufacturing of goods and services. Yeah, and that's, in the oil industry, that's a pretty big component of emissions because we're talking about refineries there, right? And all the, all the emissions that refineries put out. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. So that's scope one. Pretty straightforward, right? Scope two measures how electricity is generated. It includes all indirect emissions that result from energy purchased from utility providers by a company. This is a little more complicated. Just think about your personal electricity company. Where are they sourcing their electricity from? Is it hydroelectric? Is it uh, solar? Or is it natural gas or coal? That's scope two emissions. So overall, scope one and two emissions are fairly easy to record. They include traceable emissions from resources directly used by the company or indirectly purchased from trackable utility company metrics. However, If we only tracked the first two scopes of emissions, we would miss most of the greenhouse gas emissions generated by companies. That's because most greenhouse gas emissions are related to indirect operations in the process of providing goods and services. All of those indirect emissions, not included in scope one and two, are known as scope three emissions. Yeah, and all of our private trips by car are scope three emissions for oil companies. Right. If we're burning gas in our private car, that means that that oil company owns those scope three emissions 
And if they want to truly be net zero in their carbon emissions, they need to account for all of that uh, accumulated uh, emission from, from private trips. Absolutely. So it's important to consider these scopes of greenhouse gas emissions when reading about company pledges to become carbon neutral over the coming years, precisely because of what Joe just mentioned. In 2019, Scientific American reported that Repsol, a major Spanish oil company, became the first to pledge to be net carbon neutral by 2050. What was startling to readers involved in greenhouse gas tracking was that Repsol extended their pledge to scope three emissions and is one of few companies that have done so. So all of those emissions from burning the fossil fuels that they uh, extract, refine, and sell is included in their carbon neutral promise. Most major oil companies, including BP, Shell, Total, ExxonMobil, and Chevron, have pledged to be net carbon neutral on all of their scope one and two emissions as reported by Inside Climate News, but regarding scope three emissions, they state that they will, quote, reduce the carbon intensity of their products, unquote, without making any concrete claims. Missing scope three in their net zero efforts could mean missing the bulk of their greenhouse gas emissions generated, suggesting that more than anything else, their efforts to, quote, go green are a publicity stunt with little backing. Yeah, Rachel, you just mentioned the idea of carbon intensity, and I just want to go into that a little bit more deeply. So this idea allows an oil company to report a reduction in emissions while still maintaining or even increasing overall emissions based on the growth of their operations. So carbon intensity is a measure of the pollution per unit of energy that a company sells. For instance, ExxonMobil can get more efficient across their operations, which reduces the overall pollution that results in burning a gallon of their gas, right? But there will always be efficiency thresholds beyond which companies can't lower their carbon intensity. Oil is, after all, still oil. And all of this represents some pretty heady gyrations that oil companies are needing to go through to keep abreast of the social and climate changes happening around them. In industry speak, you'll often read about climate-differentiated crude oil. The key question here is whether companies are mitigating for their climate effects while simultaneously working to reduce production of oil for a consumer market. Most are not. OLCV, that renewables-focused division of Occidental, touted the world's first carbon-neutral shipment of oil, but they remain silent on any plans to eventually transition away from growth in their oil operations. And it's worth noting here that many oil companies' plans for climate change mitigation by 2050 do in fact meet or exceed the goals laid out in the Paris Climate Agreement. Good for them! Unfortunately, neither the Paris goals nor the company's plans will keep us below the two-degree warming threshold that's widely acknowledged to be a breaking point for many human systems worldwide. You just can't get there from here. But that doesn't stop us from trying. 
There are a few emerging technologies that oil companies like Oxy and Repsol are hanging their net zero hats on. The big one is a group of practices known as Carbon Capture and Storage, or CCS for short. CCS happens across many heavy industries and generally looks like capturing carbon emissions at the point of release, condensing them, and injecting them into the ground where they'll stay for long-term storage. There's actually a shelf a thousand meters below the surface of the sea in the Nordic Sea that is perfect for carbon sequestration. The jury's still out as to whether or not it's actually carbon neutral. Specifically, with Occidental, they use CCS technology in oil extraction by pumping carbon dioxide underground to loosen oil reserves, essentially using the product in the oil extraction process. This is still a controversial technology, but many scientists acknowledge that meeting any of our climate goals would be next to impossible without it. As we move into this transitional period from an extractive, continuous growth-based economy to a regenerative system, or from fossil fuels to green energy, some industries, like construction, will lag in their development of new ways to move forward. Carbon capture and storage could be a good means to offset the time it takes for those industries to adapt to the new normal. The danger here is to rely only on CCS as the end-all, be-all of our sustainability journey. So, oil and gas companies are reeling to try and find ways to adjust to the popularization of the climate crisis, and really, who can blame them? The fossil fuel industry, while still currently a significant need in our economy and society, has been receiving more and more backlash from climate activists and forward-thinking governments. And this is how it should be. Yeah, no surprise, therefore, that we're seeing companies pull publicity stunts like TC Energy making that big to-do about KXL being the, quote, first pipeline powered by sustainable energy, unquote. Check out the link to their video on green energy posted in our show notes. And I just want to say too, Rachel, that, you know, my vision, at least for the future, is not one in which fossil fuels go away forever and we never see another drop of oil hit our economy again. You know, I understand that that's not practical, but I do understand that consumer level oil consumption is is not practical and needs to transition to almost a complete halt over the next 30 years. It'll be interesting to see how we how we actually set out to achieve those goals, especially because we're seeing these logical fallacies of tech fixes where companies believe that they can invest in technology to reduce carbon emissions without changing the actual system of um, continuous growth. Right. Yeah. You found an interesting example in that with green hydrogen. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so you may think of hydrogen as one of the main components of water, H2O. That's stuff we need to survive, yeah? H2, however, the gaseous form of the element hydrogen, is a key component in the oil refinement process, as reported by Scientific American in 2019. Repsol, remember them, the first oil company to pledge net carbon neutral, including scope 3 emissions, referenced green hydrogen as one of the tools they plan to utilize to achieve their lofty emissions goals. Hydrogen gas is acquired by heating natural gas, 
an incredibly carbon-intensive process. Basically, green hydrogen is produced in a much less carbon-intensive way by heating water through electrolysis, which uses an electrical current to drive the chemical reaction. According to Deborah Gordon, a researcher at Brown University, green hydrogen will play two key roles in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Firstly, the direct result of using a less carbon-intensive technology in the refinement process will reduce scope 3 emissions for oil and gas companies. It'll also provide a new product for other sectors. So the reason why green hydrogen isn't produced more today is the same as the reason all companies don't invest in green technology. Essentially, it's more expensive. Regardless of the cost of green hydrogen, all I see when I read this is more technological fixes that ultimately don't change the system. At the end of the day, we're still looking at a continuous growth model, providing a new green product for other sectors, and using this tool as an excuse to keep burning fossil fuels. I'm left with this question, are companies, and just generally the fossil fuel industry, actually grappling with a transition away from fossil fuels? Or are they just responding to those consumer demands? Mm -hmm. In systems terms, it makes me really nervous to read about green technologies like green hydrogen because what that does is it locks us in to more of the same and continues our path toward specializing in this one practice and outcome, which is utilizing oil for our economic needs. And green hydrogen is one way that companies can keep that economic engine moving in the direction of oil while talking about a more sustainable system. And to my mind, that is setting us up for a, a sharper collapse later on in the future. So a part of Joe Biden's climate plan includes $400 billion over a decade for research. And my fear in that is that that money and that research will be invested in these tech fixes rather than in, um, what would it be called? Uh, I, would, I would call it more of a cultural change that we need um, that looks a little less sexy. It's more um, widely distributed and it has more to do with small localized solutions yeah. to problems rather than massive uh, investments in big flashy technological fix fixes. So maybe some of that budget might actually be reinvested in local economies and uplifting businesses that are already doing some of that groundwork for local people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Check out the show notes for all of the links to the articles that we talked about this episode. Remember, check back for a feature-length podcast, Oil & Water, for in-depth stories on Keystone XL, Line 3, and other emerging issues. We also want you to be involved, so we'll post each episode of Oil & Water Relay on our blog and social media. We encourage you to write in your thoughts and comments. In particular, we want to hear what you think. How is your relationship with the fossil fuel industry changing as you learn more? 
Oil and Water is an independent project of the Systems Zoo, an educational collaborative making high-quality media for critical thinkers. Oil and Water Relay is created and produced by me, Joe Lavisca, and Rachel Dunkeld. That's me. Music by Alexi Desmarais. Editing this episode by Joe. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Oil and Water Pod and at our website at www.oilandwaterpod.com. Support comes from our listeners like you.